Hey, Jim, how's it going today? Uh, fantastic. Uh, thanks for having me in. Yeah, you're absolutely welcome. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, what really caught my attention is now that we're unlocking from the lockdowns around the world and things are going back to whatever this new transition is, there seems to be a lot of excitement in the marketplace. Um, there's a lot of positivity. And as a futurist, and you're looking at what's on the horizon, and I noticed that a lot of your content is around disruption and the fact that you've worked with some of the biggest brands in the world, Volvo, Mercedes, NASA, really wanted to pick your brain and hear from you what you feel is near term and then maybe on that walk, run, fly trajectory, where are we headed towards? Yeah, uh, and, and the, it's, it's a complex thing. Uh, look, the future used to be fast. And I think what the pandemic has shown us is that it's even faster than uh, ever before. And I, I don't think organizations are truly prepared for that. And that's why one of the, the, the biggest trends that I'm starting to talk about, and I'm actually going to do a show later this afternoon or on Monday around it, I call it the acceleration gap. And that is, it's, it's the, the, the difference between the speed of change that is occurring and the ability of organizations um, to deal with that change. And the gap was big before, uh, you know, but going back into this new weird economy, whatever the heck it is, it's, it's even bigger. And I, I, I don't think a lot of organizations uh, are truly prepared for what's coming next. So that's an interesting point. So we're on this, this S curve of accelerated growth just because of the fact that technology stacks on top of itself and that evolution moves up in an S curve. But we also have the fact that there was a compression to digital because of the COVID crisis and everybody had to repivot and rethink their priorities in order to stay viable. What is that confluence? What's, what's, what does that confluence look like as far as businesses are concerned and what do they need to be aware of? Look, I'll give you a sneak peek of the uh, show I'm pulling together. I'm just going to hit a button here and I'm going to go back onto my uh, stage. I put about 4,000 hours into this uh, broadcast uh, studio here because uh, I missed my stage. So I actually built myself one. So, uh, you know, if I head back here, uh, this this is the gap. Uh, you know, this is what I was talking about pre-pandemic. Uh, you know, this, this pace of change, which is constantly accelerating over time. And that's the impact of the pandemic. Uh, you know, my tagline before the pandemic was the future belongs to those who are fast. Uh, and I mean, that, you know, that's what a lot of those organizations, Mercedes and NASA and Disney and, uh, you know, just crazy big global organizations were having me in where I, I mean, I spoke at a conference for the World Bank before the pandemic. Pfizer had me in like five months before the pandemic. And I was talking about the gap, which was like this little gap down here. And, and now it's suddenly exploded. And, and I, I don't think organizations are really ready for, for what's coming. I'll give you three examples and I'll come back to the desk and we can chat. FedEx. Um, they expected to hit 100 million packages per day by 2026. They now expect to hit that this year. Uh, I, I speak at a lot of medical um, groups. And before the pandemic, medical knowledge was doubling every eight years. It's now doubling every 78 days because... Science has gone crazy fast and, you know, manufacturing, I mean, it's all about supply chain. It's all about resilience. It's, it's all about that chief volatility officer. It's all about, you know, doing what we need to do. So, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about what do we do to plug the gap? What do we do to, uh, 
you know, deal with the fact that what we thought was fast has become uh, even, you know, crazy faster as a result of the pandemic. And, you know, if you think about it, we talked a lot about agility as a leadership style before the pandemic. We've got to be faster. That's no longer an option. And I think organizations that can't bridge that acceleration gap are going to be those who fall behind. So they, we did do a lot through COVID. I mean, my running joke is, who led your digital transformation? Was it your CIO? Was it your CTO? Or COVID-19? I mean, it, it was COVID-19. Everybody suddenly had to digitize. But they've only had a taste of what's yet to come. So there's the corporation and then there's the people that run the corporation that make those decisions and then there's the workforce that implements those strategies what's the mindset you're seeing them have to wrap their heads around we, you see fear in just the b2c world of technology and how fast things are moving but corporations you have your leaders and your laggards and and from what i'm reading there's as much as a 50x gap for the people that are knocking their heads against artificial intelligence, augmented reality, looking for blockchain, looking for those use cases so they can stay viable. What's, what's that mindset look like, both from a, a leadership perspective for the entire corporation, but then also in the workforce for those people needing to have those skills in order to, to keep moving forward? I, I think it's got to go all the way to the top. I think we're in a situation in which... Um, you know, it's a board level issues. If you think about a typical board of directors, we've got legal, we've got executive compensation, we've got audit, we've got, you know, risk management. You don't have a lot of boards in these slow moving organizations who are truly structured for fast paced change. So it has to be a governance issue. It has to be a CEO issue. It has to be somebody who recognizes that, look, we're going to see more change in the next five years than we have seen in the last uh, 100. And that's that's the first step um it, you know without that we're not going to have the strategy that we need to go forward we're not going to have the, the the money that needs to be invested we're not going to pay serious attention to digital infrastructure uh, just look at the number of security hacks and security flaws that organizations have that's because they don't pay serious money in security and so you can't live in a digitally transformed world if you're not going to properly secure your base. I mean, so for me, it's always been a leadership thing. And I think I think we will see a great winnowing out of um, organizations with CEOs who truly get it, where he or she understands this is a pivotal moment in digital human history and those that don't get it. Uh, if, you, if you don't start at the top, uh, you know, to work to bridge that gap, you're, you're toast. So what is that conversation? So the, the light bulb goes off with the CEO and it's time to have the conversation with the board and it is a slower moving board. What does that sales process look like to get them, pardon the pun, on board? Well, you know, that's where my role has been so fascinating because, I, you know, over the last um, 15 years, you know, my, my, I've been on stage for 25 years, so it used to be a lot of association conferences and stuff like that. The last 10 to 15 years, I was brought in by a lot of CEOs of big organizations who essentially, you can say to my leadership team, which might include some members of the board in the room, you can say things I can't necessarily say, but which need to be said. And that is that our business models are changing faster. We're being disrupted faster. Our customers are changing faster. We need to accelerate our product innovation pipeline. We need to raise the bar of expectations in terms of customer service excellence. And all of this is digital. 
so I, I think the first step is identifying just how different your future is going to be. Look at the retail. We're not going back to where we were. So much of what is going to happen, even as retail slowly reopens, the, the customer has changed. The world of manufacturing, we've, we've gone from, I think, just-in-time manufacturing to just-in-case supply chain, where everybody's been scrambling to get whatever product they can to keep the, you know, the, the systems running. And the products we're manufacturing, I mean, cars are computers on wheels, and that's why we're seeing this great semiconductor chips shortage. So the first step is, I think, education. Here's how our business is going to change. Here's what we need to do. And then it's quantifying that gap. We're here and the, and you know, the world is up there and that's, that's the gap we got to bridge. And this is what we got to spend. This is what we've got to invest. This is what we need in terms of skills. This is what we need in terms of strategy. I mean, this is, this is a huge ball of wax to unfold. And there's still a lot of organizations that aren't prepared to deal with it. Cause I mean, they're still in triage, right? I mean, they're still trying to just survive, let alone think long-term. With the rapid acceleration you were talking about, how at some point it's just too late. Um, we, we've seen this in various economic stages throughout the history of the United States globally, where there's just that moment where you don't catch up or you become irrelevant with the accelerated pace ballpark. I mean, what kind of time frame are we looking at before it's sorry? You just can't catch up. You know what? It used to be like 10 years. Um, you know, we're, we're probably dealing with two years, three years, a five-year horizon. I, I don't think it happens instantly within a year. But if you add that to CEO Hubrie, I mean, I've met a lot of CEOs along the way who, who I've, I've walked out of a, a, you know, leadership meeting with them. And I'm like, whoa, I, I was with a medical supply company. And, and you know, they, in essence, um, distribute stuff in dental veterinary healthcare. They, they're, they're sort of the middleman between a lot of uh, medical device and medical product manufacturers and doctor's offices and dental offices and veterinary offices. And, you know, I went in and looked like somebody could Amazon you. Somebody could, you know, simply do better what you do and render irrelevant um, all of the, you know, sales force that you have out there who are spending a huge amount of money uh, and simply do a great, you know, B2B Amazon type thing where Amazon could put you out of business. And his reaction, well, no, that's going to happen. We're always going to do what we're going to do. And I was like, whoa, buddy, like you truly don't get what is happening. I mean, I'm watching this company from afar and, you know, it, it might not go well. I think I think the gap has become bigger and I think the risk of the inability to catch up is becoming bigger. And we're seeing that with car companies. I mean, 10 years ago, I was explaining to the world and, you know, everybody knew that, you know, cars were becoming computers. It was about electric. It was about, you know, the fact that they were becoming big computers um, with batteries on wheels and that Silicon Valley controlled the speed of innovation. Well, I mean, I was dealing with a Chrysler laughed at me when I said that, you know, their future competitor could be a, a company like Google. Google could be your, uh, you know, competitor in the future. There's actually a video on my site from 2003 where I talk about that and I predicted Tesla as the emerging, you know, business model. Well, I mean, Tesla owns the automotive industry speed of change right now and every automotive manufacturer is scrambling to catch up and they don't have the right skills. They don't have the right capabilities. They don't have the right infrastructure. They can't get the chips. How many of them are going to disappear, be merged, be bought out? I, I think we're in for a really interesting five years because a lot of them have been caught flat footed falling behind when we've been telling them for quite some time as to what's coming next. So for the, the companies that are, 
say you're talking to a general group, what are some of the conversations that you're trying to have or the things that you're trying to say so that people get it? And that's part of what I want to accomplish with my content is so people get it because that way they'll be able to acquire the skills, be aware of what's coming, disrupt themselves personally before they get disrupted. So they stay viable as entrepreneurs, as workers, as leaders. What does your conversation look like? Well, it, it, the thing is, we've got to link the, the issue of the future to the need for innovation. And I think the challenge you know, that is out there is a lot of people, they just see the innovation piece. You need to do things differently and you need to find innovation secrets and all that kind of stuff. And without context on that, that's kind of irrelevant. And that's why a long time ago, I, just, you know, I determined what I needed to do was to take the trends. Here's how your world is changing in very specific terms. Here's the barriers that you have in place, and that's the innovation killers and culture and slow speed. And here's what you need to do about it. So it's sort of a three-part process that I go through with them. I, I go with in you know in very um, you know from a very basic perspective and a very customized perspective. Here's how your industry is changing. Here's here's the trends which are redefining you in terms of technology and speed and. Uh, your transition to a digital um, industry and how your products are changing. Here's what your competitors are doing. Here's where the disruptors are coming from. This is what is redefining your future. Now let's talk about the barriers you've got in the way. And that's where I have a lot of fun, you know, talking about the innovation colors. You, you know, the culture. You can't do that because we've always done it this way. It won't work. We're, you know, it, our world is not going to change that fast. We don't need to worry about it. You know, all the complacency stuff that just, you know, kills us. Um, but then I talk about, you know, here's, here's some pathways, things you should be doing in, in, in order to get ahead. And I, you know, I've seen some really cool stories along the way. I, one of my favorites was a, a company out in St. Louis called Amstead Rail. And they make rail bogies. That's the undercarriage of rail cars. And, you know, their CEO understood we need to, we need to master two things. We need to um, figure out how to do 3D printing. It's not just a fad. It's real. It's going to change how we manufacture and we need to integrate intelligence into our rail bogies, i.e. industrial, Internet of Things, diagnostics, and, and all that. And so, you know, we spent some time to talk about those trends. We talked about the culture in the organization that might hold them back. And we talked about pathways for success. And one of their pathways to success, I thought, was the coolest thing ever. Uh, they called it the, the Google Room. And they essentially had four young engineers gave them a whack of money, put them in a room in the foundry, made it into a clean room. They got to get all, you know, buy all the tech, buy all the toys and demonstrate to the rest of the organization, this is what we can do with 3D printing. This is what we can do with connectivity. Here is a practical pathway for product reinvention and manufacturing process reinvention. And then as I started to look around, I spotted a lot more organizations who were doing that type of thing. You know, they would call it an Xbox room or the, you know, the, you know, the, the, the toy room, or, but essentially it was, you know, 25-year-olds who understood the future uh, and were given permission to go ahead and, and help the organization understand the pathway to get to that future. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated thing, and you'll never do that if you're, you're, you know, dealing in that world of complacency. So would you say that innovation, at least when getting started, is, is a sunk cost until it isn't? Yeah, I, I've seen a lot of innovation failures. I mean, I've seen a lot of organizations who've gone in the pathway of we need to form an innovation team. And, uh, you know, they pick some special people to go do the special innovation thing. And, you know, they all walk off into a room and they study innovation and they, 
Everybody, you know what happens there? Everybody else concludes, well, I'm not responsible for innovation. There's a special innovation team over there. And it's, it's just a ridiculous failure. If you don't make that link between the trends and the need for innovation, you're, you're not going to get anyway, be, uh, anywhere because you need to know where you're going uh, in order to have a real action plan. I've always been mystified by this, this idea of innovation is simply something we run off and do. I mean, innovation without the context of the trends is a, is a completely useless exercise. And I think that's why the, the concept has gotten such a bad name. And, and you mentioned intelligence, you mentioned IoT, 3D printing. What are some of these trends that people need to be aware of? I, I think, you know, that there, there hasn't been a lot of change in terms of what we were talking about pre-pandemic. Um, those trends are still there. The, the, the fact that every single product becomes a connected, intelligent product. I mean, I was with Whirlpool Maytag and... You know, I would often explain they understand the voyage they're going on is they're no longer a company that sells dishwashers and washers and dryers. They are a company that manufactures highly intelligent computerized devices that happen to cook your food and wash your dis dishes and clean your coat clo clothes. And they know when that stuff's going to break down because of connectivity. So it's, it's intelligence products. It's predictive diagnostics. It's uh, the ability to interpret vast quantities of information, i.e. artificial intelligence. Uh, it's 3D printing, the rapid acceleration of new science materials. That's a huge one, uh, which a lot of people aren't talking about. There's a, there's a, a list on my site. In 2019, I took uh, put up a, a, a lengthy series of posts and structure of trends to watch. Um, 19 trends for 2019. And that's at 2019.jimcarroll.com. And I talk about... You know, for example, the rapid acceleration of science, that's a massive trend because science is behind so much of what we manufacture. Um, so they're sort of the grab bag of general trends, IoT, AI, um, connectivity, but, but there's bigger trends, uh, you know, which are beyond that. One of the things that I've seen is where the technologies are stacking. You take all of you take big data, you add in the automation of artificial intelligence, um, you take the increase of data input through the improvement of sensors. As these apply together, how do leaders, how do organizations stay on top of it? It's, it's not one or two things anymore. It's, it's almost all the things that are starting to come to bear on every organization combined with talent shortages. Part of it's pay to play. Part of it is find the in the weeds, 25 year olds to build out those innovation centers. How, how do companies stay abreast of what's going on in a way that they can apply it back to the business? I, you know what, I'm still a huge fan of the Gartner hype cycle. I, I think it's still one of the most powerfully relevant uh, tools that we have out there to help us do exactly that. And, uh, you know, I mean, the Gartner hype cycle, for those who aren't familiar with it, they say that every uh, trend which comes to the world, it appears, it heats, hits the peak of accelerated expectations. Uh, everybody gets crazy excited about it, and then it hits the trough of disillusionment. Everybody concludes, well, that was useless. It's never going anywhere and eventually hits the plateau of productivity. Every trend, every disruptive idea, every technology goes through that cycle. So, I mean, I wrote a book about e-commerce in 1997. It's called Selling Online. Visa bought and 
distributed 60,000 copies and people were like, people are never going to shop online. So we had the appearance of the trend. We had the trough, the massive peak of expectations, the dot-com years where everybody was going crazy about dot-com companies in 2000, 2001. Of course, we had the dot-com collapse. So we had the trough of disillusionment and everybody concluded, well, e-commerce, that's not going anywhere. Uh, well, duh, look where we are today. I mean, e-commerce dominates retail. It's destroying retail. It already was pre-pandemic. And, you know, now with the pandemic, I mean, the genie's totally out of the bottle. We had massive numbers of people who have done their first digital uh, online shopping experience and they like it. So, you know, it went through the curve. You can put 3D printing on the curve. You can put AI on the curve. You can put blockchain on the curve. You can put connected intelligence. Every single trend, every single idea, every single disruptive concept goes in the curve. So the secret to understanding the future is to enumerate the trends, figure out where they are in the curve, understand where you are, and gain some sort of appreciation of when they're going to mature. And that's where I talk about experiential capital. You know, financial capital is important. That's the money we have to invest. But it's also the accumulated experience that we have in doing new things with new trends. And that's, you know, what these folks who are fooling around with 3D printing are doing in the Xbox rooms, you know, where they're working with leading edge technologies. Because they're developing that experiential capital to gain experience with a trend that, you know, might still be up there on the hype curve, but eventually is going to hit that plateau of productivity. Uh, yeah, Gardner hype cycle, I mean, it's all right there. It's, it's not like we don't know what to do. It's the fact we don't listen enough. It's the fact we discount this stuff. It's the fact that we fall into this zone of complacency and we think that our business model, our products, our method is always going to be there. And that's why I, guys like me, we always toss out, guess what you're the next kodak you're the next blockbuster uh you're the you know you're the you're the next sears if you don't wake up when you're having those conversations and you're hearing that sort of mindset what's how what's are you seeing any commonalities in the what causes the shift to i get it I, 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 I can tell you a different perspective on that. And that is that, I mean, I've been on stage for 25 years. I mean, I, I do like, you know, big Las Vegas things of 7,500 people. And I do, you know, small little things of 20 executives in the room. And a guy like me lives on the evaluations. You know, did you like the speaker? Was the, did the message resonate? And, you know, I, in the early years, I would obsess over the fact that it seemed that one out of three people in the audience didn't like me. And I think, is it my style? Is it my method? I came to realize it's the fact that some people don't like change. They don't like the future. They, they are going to dislike my message regardless of how good a speaker I may be, regardless of the extent of the content I have. And I think that that has accelerated with the crazy political climate in the U.S. because there's a bunch of people who, you know, I, I would talk about it on stage by putting up, you know, this cartoon from the Jetsons when the Jetsons met the Flintstones. We're going to the world of the Jetsons. We got a bunch of Flintstones around. And, you know, so we see this with this, like, crazy Foxconn plant that was going into Wisconsin. I mean, I called that as a failure as soon as I heard about it. It's not going to go anywhere. We're not going to be able to, to compete with the Chinese in Wisconsin. We don't have the skills. We don't have the capability. We don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the knowledge. We don't have the workforce. Um, so I think the challenge is there's a lot of people who simply don't like the future, don't like to be confronted with the reality of change, and so they do a natural human thing. They hide from it. 
And I think I think that's a bigger problem to overcome. When do we see the lights go off? Uh, sadly, it's many times once the disruption is underway and they realize they've got a new competitor. And whoa, we didn't see that coming. Well, yeah, you did. I, I I've long said there's three types of people. There's those who watch the future happen. There's those who make the future happen. And then there's those who they're like the snowboarder dude. You know, it's about, whoa, where did that come from? I didn't see that coming. Well, actually, you did because we told you about it. I do see a lot of um, very leadership-focused thinkers. I, I was with Purina Animal Feed, right? They, they, they sell commodity product, which goes to local co-ops throughout the Midwest um, that are sold to farmers. And the two senior executives I've spent time with talking there, they understood Amazon. You know, they understand Amazon could put them out of business. Uh, they understand that Amazon could put their cooperative dealers, who are small farmer, you know, cooperatives in Midwest America, um, Amazon could decide to sell and put those co-op dealers out of business. So they brought me in for two dinner talks to about a thousand co-op farmer executives to give them that message. I can guarantee you there were a bunch of people in the room who didn't like me, didn't like my message, would just wish Amazon would go away. But that is a very real disruptive trend which could play out. So complacency... Flintstones, yeah, there's a billion reasons for what's going wrong out there. And I think it's become worse in the U.S. because of the political environment. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit? Oh, geez. What's, I mean, <laughs> what's the, what, like what the, I mean, without getting too deep into it, but what, what about the political climate? Look, is, we're not going to reinvent manufacturing by building walls on borders. I mean, I'm based in Toronto, Canada, and we've been through the absolute crazy situation. Uh, where tariffs have been placed upon the steel and metal that the U.S. needs to manufacture because they wanted to return manufacturing to the U.S. It doesn't happen like that. The future of manufacturing is all about advanced methodologies, advanced skills, advanced scientific materials, reinventing process, um, challenging ourselves to adapt to new advanced uh, manufacturing methodologies, 3D printing. Uh, I was with a robotics manufacturer in Davenport, Iowa at a customer event, um, Genesis Systems. And, you know, I was talking to one engineer, and I mean, this has become one of my go-to quotes. It's almost as if the typical machinist today has to be able to do trigonometry in their heads in order to be able to run some of the manufacturing equipment that we have. That's reality. And the challenge is the manufacturing sector in the U.S. does not have those skills, is not doing what it needs to do to accelerate and develop those skills. And so a political class is determined, hey, guess what we're going to do? We're going to throw some uh, tariffs and borders and, uh, you know, beat up on China and we'll make America great again. It doesn't happen like that. And I think we're now witnessing the failure of that type of thinking. And we'll continue to see the failure in that type of thinking because you cannot get to the future by doing those things. You know, look, I spoke in Brazil in 2014 at a massive global event called world skills and it's sort of like the global olympics of advanced skills which included 3d printing graphics design woodworking uh advanced industrial design all these things and uh, you know you've got countries um uh, with 25 year olds from you know 100 countries around the world competing they all come up um through the education system so in the u.s they get to this global skills olympics through something called skills usa and you know who was winning all the advanced skills categories? Singapore, Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, um, Canada. I think we won graphic arts, arts, and I think you know the U.S. won web design. Like we are falling so far, far behind in advanced skills is simply staggering. So the politics of 
to be blunt, mega is 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 a guaranteed path to failure. If people don't like to hear that. They politicize that message, but when you put it in the context of the stark reality of the accelerated trends which are underway, I mean, it's it's clear um, it doesn't have a path forward. Let's say we we bet on a, a positive outcome that 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 collaboration between public and private ultimately works out, and public government figures out okay, here's what we need to do to start raising the bar and, and prepare students. People are, kids are coming out of college, more educated and ready to go to work day one. Until we get to that point, companies have to survive. What do they do to skill up? I, you know, that's, that's a tough one because there is such a skills gap. I mean, there's no shortage of advanced jobs in manufacturing in the U.S. today. The people simply don't exist. Uh, and it takes time to develop those skills, enhance those skills. That's why I've always been a big fan of community colleges. Uh, you know, the community colleges have sort of been a mindset, well, what skills do we need next month uh, in the U.S. corporate sector? Cool, let's throw together a course to develop those. And, and I think it's that type of um, thinking on reskilling. Uh, you know, I mean, I've been using a phrase for years, just-in-time knowledge. We're increasingly in this situation in which we've got to get the right knowledge at the right time for the right purpose for the right situation. And it's our ability to do that that will really define our success. And so we see a lot of partnerships um, between um, companies and community colleges or advanced education groups to try to to deal with the skills gap. So there's short-term things you can do, but this is a big systemic long-term transformative trend that that you you have to do right. And, and, And I mean, we've known for a long time that North America, Canada is as guilty, uh, you know, that we're falling behind um, Singapore and Hong Kong and Korea and Japan in, in these advanced skills. And it's not just manufacturing. I mean, it's occurring in healthcare. It's occurring in genomics. It's occurring in agriculture. It's occurring in robotic tractors. We're going to be farming 24 hours a day. And that's a whole new mindset. It's a whole new skill. And I've explained kids who've grown up playing Farmville. I mean, they've developed the capability to understand the farm of the 21st century. Well, there's other nations who are ahead uh, in accelerating that capability. So I think it's recognition, you know, this, this acceleration gap doesn't just exist at a company level. It, it exists on a, on a national level as well. What, what can, can people do from an individual responsibility? So can't, can't bet on, on the, the government institution, let's say right now, um, and you're at an organization that's behind but you yourself have your own ambitions and goals. What do the What does that person do? I, uh, you know what, I'm 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 writing a book right now on uh, the the concept is reinvention, and it's sort of precisely that. And I've I've interviewed a rock star. I've interviewed a guy. Um, um, he was a, an ex-con. I interviewed a guy who was a pastor at a, a church in Pennsylvania. I've interviewed somebody who was a meeting planner. I interviewed a guy who was um, a guitarist for Sting on tour. Uh, you know, for, for two years. And it's, it's, it's just been a series of um, sort of video podcasts I did with these people about how did you reinvent yourself for this fast world? And the more I did of them, I realized, you know, each of these folks are telling, you know, individual stories about what their pathway was to do that type of thing. And, and I, you know, I think a lot of this has to do with our mindset. It has to do with what we do upstairs. It has to do with um, our ability to think 
about the future as an opportunity and what can we be doing to pursue it as an opportunity and what can I do to continue to enhance my skills to get there and how can I continue to geek out and play with new stuff um, in order to do these things? I mean, I'm a, I'm a hardcore Linux geek. I mean, I've I think I got like you know 31 computers in this house and I got Linux servers all over the place. And today I just downloaded a you know a new package to let me do text search analysis because I'm going to build my own internal search engine. I mean, that is not an earth-shaking project, but it satisfies my geek cravings, but will also teach me an additional something new about our world. I got a bunch of Raspberry Pis around the house that you know teach me about what is continuing to unfold in sensor world and industrial internet of things and you know all these things it's we got to do all these things at a personal level in terms of attitude and our ability to think about reinvention and our ability to continue to re-enhance our knowledge and expertise and skills so what really bubbled up to me what i'm hearing you say and it's definitely a bias of mine is is that learning to crave to learn yes and if you follow your passions, Linux geek, hey, I want to find out what's going on with sensors, so I'm going to find a way to make that interesting to me, then you can both emotion you can emotionally connect with that right now it's a need, turned it into a desire as well to continuously learn so that you do stay abreast and don't get disrupted. Yeah, there's an educator, Lewis Perlman. He had one of my favorite phrases of all time. Learning is what most adults will do for a living in the 21st century. And, you know, look, I see this with my 27-year-old son. I mean, I, on stage 20 years ago, I would talk about the emergence of what I called a location intelligence professional. And that's the individual who would, you know, somehow develop a career based upon spatial, i.e. GIS, geographic-oriented information. I think he was listening. He's now a drone pilot uh, working for a commercial industrial uh, real estate firm, and he's doing drone flyovers with very detailed location analysis of very complex GIS information gathered via drone. He's also become a Linux geek, uh, and he is a smart garden. He's got water sensors, and he's got humidity sensors. He's got, you know, lights that will turn on and off. He's got webcams, which are tracking their growth. And uh, he can access all this via his uh, phone. Um, and, you know, his brother said to him, like, Willie, if you want to see the plants, just walk down and have a look at them. And he goes, but that's no fun. You know, he's, he's in this pathway, as a lot of folks are, I think, to continually enhance and develop his knowledge. And as a dad, I couldn't be, you know, absolutely prouder. So I think, you know, anybody who's out there and they're stuck in the trenches, and they're in a Joe job and they're looking at the world and there's big stuff going around. But have the courage to reinvent, have the courage to pursue your passion, have the courage to, to do things you haven't done before. Look, here's my career background. I'm actually a professional accountant. I'm a, I'm a CPA. Uh, gosh, almost 40 years ago, I was with, I started with a predecessor firm of Ernst & Young and KPMG and I did exciting auditing and taxing accounting work. And I, I got onto a, a Radio Shack um, TRS-80 in 1982, hooked into a bulletin board um, for the very first time and sent my first email. And I went, Whoa, there's something huge going on here. And I, I threw away career as an accountant to get involved in the online world. And I ended up writing, you know, a bunch of books about the early days of the internet, sold a million books, started speaking about it, you know, realized this is about trends, and now I'm a futurist advising NASA on the future of space. I mean, I, I'm an accountant for crying out loud, and NASA's had me in twice for talks about the future of space. Yeah, pursue your passion, do things you haven't done before. I mean, there's there's so much opportunity that is out there, and I think if you're not pursuing it, 
you really need to think about it. And, and you know, that's the type of thing that um, I'm, I'm beginning to cover uh, in the reinvention book. I, and actually in my home broadcast studio here, I, I sat down, the video clip is actually on my site. I interviewed myself um, and I did it live with some pre-taped clips um, on, you know, the entire process that led me, uh, you know, into how do you become, you know, go from being an accountant to being a futurist. You got to do it. I mean, there's so much in this world out there and you got to be an optimist, you know, at your core to pursue it. Agree with the optimism. And, and since what you just said is so optimistic, as as our, our coup de grace, what piece of unsolicited advice would you give to people watching this right now about what to do with their present, whether they're a business leader, a budding entrepreneur, a high school student, someone in college? just sort of across the board, anywhere in the world, how my, do they... My, my go-to phrase on stage, and this is the one that people would always write down. I'll give you two. These, these are the ones that people always wrote down. I can see them, you know, I'm on stage and like thousands of people out there and they're writing. I would, I would explain, we are in a situation in which companies that do not yet exist will build products not yet conceived using materials not yet invented, with methodologies not yet in existence, using skills they have yet to develop. That's the future right there, and you can be a part of that. And, and, and the way I would explain to get there is, is you know, my other go-to phrase, think big, start small, scale fast. I mean, that's, that's the pathway to success. I, I think a lot of us don't think big enough. We don't start small enough. We don't fool around with raspberry pies and geek out and all this stuff and then learn how to scale because of that acceleration gap and the fact that the future belongs to those who are fast. I, I mean, that, that to me is it right there. hundred percent agree. It's uh, you, it's interesting to watch and experience when you chunk something down into micro skills that builds a larger skill that you can connect to learning other skills. And then that, that there opens up your mind to more of what's possible because you, as you advance your knowledge, you push further and further to edge, like going from an accountant to building, building uh, out a, a smart home with sensors. Well, I mean, I've, I've been brought into a bunch of organizations with engineers to talk about the industrial internet of things. And I'm not just a pretty face up there talking about it. Cause like I'm doing IOT, uh, you know, throughout my house by, you know, building some of this stuff. Uh, um, you know, you, you, you can't get into a room of, of a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, hardware and computer geeks um, at some of the world's largest computer companies. And you, you don't have credibility if you can't um, live and understand the origins of the Linux kernel, which is like 30 years ago today. Linus started it up and you've worked with every iteration of it along the way. And you know what the forking means and you know the role of GitHub plays and you know, you know the mindset of the community spirit behind it. And you know the back of the room um, arguments that you know people have over Vim versus uh, you know VI and you know I mean you gotta you gotta work with this stuff to be able to to, to um, deal with this stuff. Agreed, Jim. I really appreciate you taking the time. This was enlightening, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you for having me.